Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. Over the course of almost two complete seasons on the HQ, we have talked with so many leaders across numerous organizations. But as we hold very true here at CHA Learning, Leaders exist all levels, and many of whom don't have official titles or roles. Indeed, there are leaders around all of you who work at the front lines and bedside in healthcare, including those in parts of the health continuum which don't get as much attention, like hospice care. What will make this conversation unique is that it is about the remarkable gifts captured in the hardest, sometimes saddest, and sometimes scariest moments in our life experience, and specifically in those last moments of life. It is a time in our life cycle that seems so diametrically opposed to the curative practices we most commonly associate with healthcare, and, as such, which many healthcare workers themselves find difficult. But what you're going to hear today is that it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be seen as an opposing moment. So welcome all to a conversation which I might distill as one that is actually about creating joy and laughter in healthcare something many really need right now. I had the profound pleasure to hear today's guest at a conference earlier this spring. I found her story inspiring, as I hope you will as well. And given how much we have discussed the challenges and heightened stressors in healthcare, especially the last several years, I thought an uplifting conversation that reframes may be helpful for many. Perhaps a chance to reconnect our listeners with the passion that drew them into healthcare in their first place. So, with that, let me introduce you to today's guest, Zofia Dove. Zofia has over 30 years of international experience in healthcare systems, specifically in geriatric and palliative care. During this time, she has touched the lives of thousands of people in a profound way. She has brought joy and laughter to many patients at the most critical time of their lives. Zofia's deep understanding of the human condition, as it is related to aging, death, and dying, makes her an unexpected gift to everyone she is in contact with. Sophia is the best-selling author of Unexpected Gifts, a book inspired by interactions and experience with her clients. Her passion is to teach more effective communication skills, especially for those caring for the clients in transition. As I'm hoping you will shortly experience yourselves, she is an inspiring, empowering, and entertaining speaker who brings more light, love, and laughter to some very serious topics. And indeed, she will openly share her passion on the power of humor in communication. She brings this new perspective to institutional leadership, business and healthcare professionals, teams and caregivers through her talks and training programs. So hi, Sylvia, and welcome to the HQ. Hello, uh, good morning. Thank you for inviting me. I am, uh, I am intrigued and eager to share about my practices. Thanks, Sophia. Yes, thank you for joining me today. Have this conversation that is, I'm sure, going to get people thinking and talking and feeling. So, maybe while I've provided our listeners with a, you know, your very high level introduction, um, I've heard you tell your story before about your own journey. So, I thought maybe we could start there um, and talk about, you know, your life from Poland um, to where you are today and, and how did you end up doing what you're doing? Uh, natural progression, I would say. Uh, when I look back at being a young uh, teenager woman, I always been interested in psychology, but that uh, understanding came to me recently, actually. Uh, I uh, 
as a teenager, I was seeking a career which would be suitable to that who I was. And that would be someone who was active, uh, physically involved in sports, uh, full of energy. And there was element of uh, being intrigued by other human beings and wanting to help. So uh, I end up taking a course uh, at the um, biggest rehabilitation center of my country, Poland, where I was born. Uh, that course was probably nine months. Uh, it was done by clinicians, people who had hands-on and worked with patients. So a lot of uh, literally being exposed to the patients. And in, a, in a, that course was to give me rights to work in that center as rehab assistant. But I realized in the course uh, of taking uh, this practice uh, that I am really passionate about it. So I end up taking steps and end up becoming a physiotherapist in Poland. Mm -hmm. But as life has it, I was very highly uh, rewarded by my career in terms of satisfaction and fulfillment uh, and also uh, the feedback from my patients. Uh, but uh, life has it that in no time, I found myself being on the opposite side of the globe almost in Canada and not being able to speak uh, English, not a word of English. And yet there was a passion in me and I kept telling everybody I want to work in a hospital and uh, life arranged it in an in interesting way that in a year and a half, I worked in one of the biggest uh, uh, hospitals. I worked in one of the biggest uh, hospitals in Winnipeg, uh, St. Boniface Hospital. Mm -hmm. And uh, hardly speaking the language, you can imagine I was here just one year and a half. I found myself working on psychiatric units uh, twice uh, a week. That was uh, that was absolutely out of this world experience because I hardly understood what people were saying uh, with the logical language. Uh, never mind um, not being understand everything what they were saying. Um, mm -hmm. But that was uh, prior to this, I worked in a nursing home and uh, not being speaking much of language at that time at all. I realized years later that I was very attuned with uh, signals from my patients, uh, from people I was cared for, which were not uh, logical and not uh, vocal, not oral, not words. So I yeah. was paying attention to uh, signals which were nonverbal. And that, uh, in the later years of uh, addressing needs of my patients, uh, became a very valuable uh, source of information. So, uh, so that life had it that I ended up working in uh, capacity in uh, in Canada. I was rehab assistant because I had no uh, no language, therefore I couldn't uh, defend my degree in Canada. Mm -hmm. and I ended up working as rehab assistant. But that gave me a lot of time with patients, which therapists over years uh, didn't have. So I, I did my assigned duties with my patients as to exercises and such. Uh, but uh, I also had time to talk to people and listen to them. And that turned out to be um, a source of immense uh, value. Because here I had a chance to listen to people uh, emotional state. So over years, gradually, it progressed from looking after people' physicality as to strength of their muscles, ability to move their limbs and be able to move physically. Yes. Uh, and then as I listened to people, I started recognizing that my patients have uh, thoughts, emotional states, and they are affecting the body, the function, and the uh, healing process. And naturally, it seemed, I don't know, life, natural progression, I started being introduced to patients who were uh, facing the immortality, either by uh, sudden shifts in life, 
Mm-hmm. So let's say someone was in a car accident or had heart attack or had stroke, uh, which was uh, sudden shifts in life. Uh, and they uh, they were going through traumas of all different kinds within. And I started recognizing that unless someone is totally paralyzed, we are not addressing people's emotional states and mm-hmm. what they're experiencing within. So given that I had a lot of time to sit and uh, spend time with patients, uh, or I crafted it in such a way that I was very efficient when it came to um, to the physical activities. Uh, and then I had sometimes, I intentionally cut out time to spend time with people. But in the process, I also started uh, recognizing that that interaction with patients and that every moment had profound influence on them. And hence why humor started showing up gradually. Mm-hmm. But as I mentioned, uh, throughout the whole process, I also started being uh, uh, attending to people and one would think how in the world were you attending to people at the end of life uh, when you were in rehab but many of my patients were deemed palliative in the in the course of the journey um, not everybody healed and many of them faced their immortality hence why uh, spirituality and this whole um, question end of life as to who i am and what life is about all of this started surfacing fascinating and that's i mean i, I think it's it's very it's a it's a beautiful story um and and certainly one i think that gives us pause to sort of reflect in terms of you know how a person as you've described right who is you know attuned to caring for the body um goes through a, a journey of of you know caring for for the heart and soul um and the mind and, and all of that as well a different kind of physical therapy i guess but uh yes. but equally connected so um I'm certainly struck by you know the, the conversations I've heard you you know mentioned before um, about the need for more training in the area of spiritual care and healthcare. Um, I think that you've described it, that as a I guess an, an awakening through your own experience. Um, could you maybe sort of expand on that a little bit more as well? Very much so. I, the healthcare system, especially hospitals, we are tending to human physicality. Um, we are mending human body. We uh, and there is a illness process. We are attending to this, but from my experience, we are attending to uh, to human uh, physical symptoms. Hence, why this need to recognize people's emotions, and not just the emotions of the ones who are in our care, but the very emotions of those who are attending to the ones who are in our care. So, our caregivers' emotions, what we bring into the presence of others, because all of this is absolutely intricate. But the question, why spirituality? Our uh, five senses are giving us experience of identity that we are the body and we are the thoughts. And mm-hmm. in the recent uh, experiences with the pandemic, global pandemic, uh, we globally face the fear of death. Mm-hmm. Because the fear which we had was uh, basically, if you really think about what was the fear, it was that every fear is uh, indirectly and then directly leading to the fear of death. And with that, we started asking ourselves all kind of questions. Hopefully we did as to who we are. At the end of life, uh, when a person is uh, facing their own mortality, the human mind has no capacity to grasp its own mortality. And that's why this is such an amazing space for us to experience something which is beyond our typical five sensory experiences and identity that we are the mind and we are the thoughts. And when I was addressing my patient's thoughts, frankly, yesterday, I was talking to someone 
who is suicidal for 25 years. And I managed to have a moment with the person when the person smiled a few times. That to me is achieving something profound. So all kind of um, methods, especially in the form of uh, trying to address the uh, chemical balances in the mind were already introduced over the years and nothing is working. But when you really listen to the person, she will say, um, I have these thoughts. I have these thoughts. So mm -hmm. my question to her was, if you have these thoughts, that means you are not the thoughts because there's something in you that is having these thoughts, like you having this shirt on, like you having uh, a great meal. That means that's not your identity, who you are. And the person actually asked me at some point, so who am I? And I said, that's an amazing question that most of us don't ask. Mm -hmm. At the end of life, when I was attending to my patients, but also in my personal experiences, when someone was dying in my life, when my brain, therefore my patient's brain or those who are in the presence of death, when we are unable to make logical sense because our mind's capacities are not adept to grasp mortality, its own mortality, we start experiencing states which are way beyond logic. Suddenly people see how things are synchronized, how the right people show up at the right time, how certain words are being spoken. Life is intricate and flowy because we cannot uh, control death. It is the one of the frontiers, if you will, for lack of better words, the place, the space where life is bigger than our logical minds. Mm -hmm. And when we come to that space, if we do, with openness, rather than being fully, uh, because most of us are very overtaken by grief, grieving emotions, heavy human emotions of loss. When we have a little bit openness and we come with openness to the presence of death, we are, uh, for lack of better words, graced or have part in experiences which are beyond logic. And let's make no mistakes. There are countless researches being done throughout the world where people testify to these experiences globally, regardless of the religion, background, um, um, belief systems, they do experience something like uh, which is beyond the norm five senses, but we don't share these experiences and we don't talk about it out of fear of ridicule. Because it is so logical that if we introduce it to someone who is operating on the logical level, we being deemed weird. Mm -hmm. But my patients, when I came to their presence with openness, it's almost as if they had a sixth sense or I, there was communication where they would give me a tiny statement and it was an invitation to which I was attuned and I followed. And they would testify to experiencing the existence even when the body was deemed um, dying or uh, the existence was coming to its end as we know it, meaning physicality and the brain processes were coming to its end. Wow. So there's a, yeah, there's, there's a lot of prof profound sort of experiences in what you're sharing. And, and I think, you know, we're going to get into more of it as we continue the conversation here. Um, I guess, I mean, it may beg the question, but but why do we need to bring more of this back into, I guess, our practice of how, as healthcare professionals? 
uh, it starts with because we were talking about why the training in spiritual care when mm-hmm. it is a very undefinable field, if you will. Uh, it is not the measurable, uh, as we know, everything else in healthcare system uh, being done, uh, field or part of. And uh, and the reason we need to do it, because uh, if we plant these seeds and people start come across experiences like this, it uh, it is not going to derail them. It It will prepare them in a sense. Nurses, doctors, I could give you names of published uh, authors, highly renowned professionals with medical knowledge, experts who themselves uh, experienced uh, situations when they were uh, facing their own mortality or were in comas and they returned to life, heal in miraculous way, as we would call it, mm-hmm. because our medical uh, knowledge is not allowing us to experience, uh, explain and uh, intellectualize and tell us what happened there yet. And they testifying to their own existence when the medical world, when we on this side, for lack of better words, are uh, deeming them being dead or gone or irreversibly damaged uh, uh, psychologically or brain functions or body. People do resume life. And I have to tell you, I uh, witness and I've been part of instantaneous remissions when the physicians are running CT scans and trying to determine why such a outcome came instantaneously, healing outcome, if you will, and they have no way of explaining what happened. Uh, one story that comes to mind is a patient of mine had stroke during uh, heart surgery and had totally flaccid one side of his, uh, uh, of his body. And uh, as a physiotherapy uh, rehab person I was coming and I was touching my patient's body so I was moving his leg and I uh, became so attuned with my patients that I could feel uh, there were uh, trickles of electric signals going to his foot and I said to him that I can sense that the connection uh, the neurological connection and the signals are still coming to his foot I can feel it I can sense it and uh, so it was, uh, I said to him, I'm promising nothing, although I've seen here uh, remarkable things happening uh, in, in the course of my work with people. And uh, the next day when I was uh, doing exercises with his leg, his wife was, he was a pastor and his wife was sitting next to him. So there was additional witness. It's not just my story or the patient's story. And uh, he said to me, there was a bolt of energy going up my spine. And we were all shocked by his statement. The next thing you know, he lifted his arm, hand, he touched his head, and he said to his wife who was sitting to his left, honey, now my head hurts. And she said, honey, you are holding your head with your paralyzed arm. He was able, this from a physiotherapy point of view should take years to accomplish. And this man did it instantaneously. So what's at work? These situations do take place in the healthcare system. And we are not talking about it openly because we don't have the means to explain why is it working for one person and is it possible to make it available to others. And yet something is at work and we are dismissing it for whatever reason, because it's unknown and we deeming it, we naming it in whichever we want to, but it is taking place. And I've seen it more than once in my practice in um, and physiotherapy and uh, service to patients. So, you know, for some of our listeners, um, 
you know, who maybe have, you know, different faiths, um, you know, maybe even atheists or agnostics or whatever it may be, um, you know, how would you distinguish what you've been describing in terms of the spiritual care um, from, you know, what others might describe as faith-based care? Mm. Faith is, uh, faith-based care is uh, based on a belief system which was introduced to us uh, from, uh, through the word or testimonies of others. Uh, care of the spirit and spiritual state is something that we experience. It's something that uh, maybe uh, teaching of others were pointing us to, which most religions do. They point us to something that uh, is uh, in at work in our lives, which is beyond the physicality and the uh, function of the brain. But uh, unless we experience it, we question it, mm -hmm. right? So uh, spirituality is like a sea in which individual religion is floating. <laughs> How do I say it? It's universal. It's a language of every human being. Mm -hmm. Hence why joy is so powerful and works regardless of the background, uh, uh, cultural background or, or uh, religious background, or maybe there is no background. Some people mm -hmm. are uh, not believing in no system and no God, but yet it's still at work. Because when you think of it, every human uh, body is... Uh, animated by force which is uh, which is animating the body obviously uh, everyone has heart which is pumping every human being has thoughts and emotions every human being is looking for happiness every human being responds to the language of compassion regardless if they have indigenous background and belief systems and practices or roman catholic or protestant or they buddhist we all respond to the same. Hence why joy is so powerful and humor, because it's a universal language that every human uh, understands. What, uh, what humor does, it questions the adopted to and believed into realities and belief systems in a non-offensive way. It bypasses the belief system, the set rules, the set belief systems. It brings yet another perspective and creates psychological distance to the heaviness of the situation. Humor is so powerful. I am shocked that it's not being taught in, uh, in medical trainings, frankly, in in trainings uh, uh, about communication because every human being gets the humor. And when I teach and I present on humor and the power of joy and humor, I uh, talk about that one, which is not uh, offensive and it's not demeaning. It's not at expense of other. It's the one which is truly universal and works for all of us. And we all have access to it, but no one pointed out to us. It's this, the, I, I'm, I'm shocked as to how simple, in a sense, it is and how overlooked it is. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'm going to, I guess, assume or, you know, conjecture in, that as healthcare professionals are being trained, right, they're, they're being taught a certain professional code, right, um, and that 
you know, healthcare is a serious business. Um, and as such, in the ex execution of their roles, right, there, there is no place for humor per se, right? It's, it's, a, it's a scientific method. Um, and so, I mean, how do you, even given your own professional background and trainings, how do you reconcile those two things together? How we deliver the care to our patients from our seriousness and uh, almost with element of fear and sense of uh, heavy feel of responsibilities for saving someone's life and affecting another's life. The patients, on the other hand, are testifying to how our states our psychological thought processes and our very way of being with them affects them. So if you ask patients, they will tell you that those who come with heaviness, seriousness, and uh, I'm far from saying there's no time and space for this, no one is laughing hysterically when someone is in a, uh, in a state of experiencing profound pain. Mm -hmm. No one is, uh, you know, being a jokester or a comedian at the bedside of a patient. Uh, but the, the patient in, uh, themselves will tell you if the person who comes into their presence affects them positively or negatively based mm -hmm. on their caregiver's emotional states, intentions, and their own very state of being. So those who come with lightheartedness, with uh, openness, with compassion, which is not a heavy emotion, but it's true love and care for another, which the intention of compassion is uh, minimize the suffering of the one in front, when that very state of the caregiver is present, that itself affects the patient and the energy level and the mood and therefore the uh, willingness and ability to address or deal with what they have. And I have to tell you, there is a story that comes to mind. A patient came to a hospital uh, for, with a problem and it was addressed uh, through surgery, but yet the patient has full package of emotional things to deal with. And uh, to bring a little bit of a joy brings normality, brings hope for change brings energy of life, brings uh, uh, a ray of light, mm -hmm. lightness, hope. And that can be introduced to the very uh, moment, last moment. And the reason why we need to teach about it is because we're talking about client-centered care, but we're looking more at the screens and the records we need to write uh, and uh, the legality behind looking after people but we're not really attuned with what's going on with the patient and around the patient. In order to bring humor and moments of joy in heavily uh, emotionally charged situations, when someone is gravely ill, one needs to be so aware to one's own state and the dynamics which are unfolding in front of them. That is being truly client-patient-centered care. You know, I work recently with patients who are in advanced states of dementia. Mm -hmm. And they, within minutes, from incoherent sounds, form individual words, and then make whole statements, 
full logical sentence, sometimes within minutes. My experiences as of recent working with people with advanced states of dementia, that they have awareness, not just to us, but also to themselves. I am yet to write another book about how we training uh, healthcare providers by giving them stories and situ situations and uh, asking them to commend it to their memory. And then in the presence of, be of being in the presence of patients with dementia, we expect the caregiver to run through the records of these memories of these stories in order to find the uh, uh, real response to the, what's unfolding in front of us. Mm -hmm. That takes way too long because you need to be so attuned with the person in front of you and respond to the emotional language, even if it is not a language of logic, because it's not a language of logic. Just yesterday when I was leaving work, um, where I um, address needs of these people, the CEO was actually in the lobby with one of the residents who was waiting for transport to pick the person up and said to me, help me. And I, I faced the person and we had conversation without logical words. And she witnessed this, that I was responding to what was in front of us, what the person was expressing without words. But we are not giving healthcare providers tools which they can use, not only in connecting with people with dementia and Alzheimer's, but those tools are, uh, skills which they can take to everyday life whenever they go to communicate. Yes. Yeah, so, so some of what you've been describing for me to relate it back to my own, I guess, work and experiences. Uh, I mean, we, we talk about, you know, we, we do a lot of education on leadership and, and as such, we talk about, um, you know, qualities that, that leaders need to possess. And we talk about compassion, human, you know, humility, um, and when you talk about a person approaching bedside, you know, with a lightheartedness and and the ability to 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 experience what's happening in front of them, just by your last uh, story, um, it seems that they they're demonstrating a kind of humility or humanity in themselves by being vulnerable, by being I think you used the word normal, um, but just being authentic, um, and that that creates a space of, you know, in our leadership practices creates um, psychological safety, but, um, right. But in the experience of, of being bedside, it's creating a, a safety um, for the the patient, resident, client, whoever is sort of experiencing that. Is, is it, Would that be fair, I guess, in terms yes. of what? Yes. What, uh, what communication with humor uh, brings to the table is uh, it's meeting of two equals. That's mm -hmm. what true compassion is. I am not coming to you because I have knowledge and you are in a weakened position and you have nothing to offer. Therefore, I'm coming to you and I am fixing you and I am telling you which way to go. It's a dance of two and it's exchange. We are all teachers and students of each other. You know, a lot of what I'm telling you is from experience which my patients allowed me to enter. They allowed me into the inner worlds and they shared that with me because they saw that I didn't come from a position power over and knowing it all. I came there with genuine interest to learn from them about what they experiencing at this state of their journey. 
And what came from them was so rich and uh, that no book and study could prepare me for because it was the genuine connection between two human beings. And when there is such a exchange that we indirectly um, valuing another human person, another person, we are empowering them. We are showing them value. My One of my favorite uh, words to my patients were, thank you. You taught me something new I never thought about. Mm-hmm. So, so when you're talking about uh, compassion, humor, to, for humor to be present, the kind of humor I'm teaching about, uh, that's a bridge between two human beings. So I think you, you started to touch on this a little bit, but I mean, you know, it, it's, it's become a lot more um, prevalent, I guess, in, in healthcare over the course of the last three or four years, um, you know, where many healthcare providers are, um, right, are, are having to be, you know, bedside, right, for, you know, an end of life experience with somebody that wasn't prepared for um, it, you know, obviously, those that are in, in a hospice or a palliative care environment, you know, that that's the journey that they're spending. But, you know, we, we have a lot more people in long term care, which, um, right, have been having these experiences. And, you know, and I think we've heard, right, many of them are not prepared for what they're experiencing, right. And that has been created a, a moral distress for some of them, um, in terms of that. And yet you describe your own experience, I appreciate it's been organic and you, but you've discovered joy in that, you know, yes. in those experiences. So, you know, thinking about those that haven't been able to find joy in those experiences yet and have been troubled by it, quite frankly, you know, how do you relate, like maybe step in them with, you, you know, your logical experience, or I know it's an emotional part too, but, but where's the joy in being bedside with somebody who is dying? Where is the joy? Joy is a state of being. We humans, we actually deep inside having states of beings, um, like a clear sky, states of beings are always there. Everything else is uh, clouds, which are passing, thunderstorms, and these are our thoughts. If we really start speaking about how do you address uh, um, passing of another? Well, the journey starts inside of the healthcare provider. And that is, um, starts becoming, one of the things I ask people is, pay attention to how your thoughts trigger different emotional states within you. For example, let's say I have teenager children and they are flirting with drugs. The moment I start thinking about them and their life going into down spiral, probably causing their death, I am in a space of fear, desperation, and uh, worry. Mm -hmm. And that will bring emotional reaction. This very thought, the projection into the future as to how that life will unfold in the future will cause me certain emotional state. And if I shift my thoughts into hope that not everyone who is flirting with drugs in teenager years end up being drug addict and it caused them life, uh, then I'm shifting my thoughts into state of hope. Mm -hmm. And with that thought, what follows is different emotional reaction within me. 
but there is someone within each one of us which is observing, capable of observing these fleeting thoughts, therefore fleeting emotional states. Deep inside, the state of being of every human being is peace, joy, and love. But because we are constantly being played by our thought processes and projections to the future or remembering the past, we are being played by our thought processes emotionally. So healthcare providers carry this responsibility of being responsible for the life staying or life leaving. You know, recently I talked to the nurses that I am surrounded by because there were quite few departures, meaning few people passed on within one week on mm -hmm. one unit. And the, the nurses who are naturally trained to save people lives and make uh, the, uh, the journey as uh, easy, easy as possible, painless and such, mm -hmm. uh, are overwhelmed by this departure. Yeah, exactly. It usually comes in waves too. It's usually more than one person at the time. And I just made one statement which acquainted them from the responsibility for every life. I said to them, but there is actually a contract, that's how I phrased it, between the life, every spirit, every soul, and the creator. There is actually a choice is given free will to every life. This is not fully up to us to decide that life is leaving or is staying. Why is it that people against all odds are hanging on to life and waiting for someone to show up at their bedside at the end in order to say goodbye and only they they let go? Against all predictions of our knowledge, based on our knowledge and predictions that how the system, how the physical system works, we, this person shouldn't be living mm -hmm. as far as we're concerned. But yet the life prevails because that life within has a choice, which we forget about. Therefore, the burden of the life partying or staying, it's on us. We take it as of our responsibility only. Mm -hmm. What else is underlying in all of this is fear. Fear that what happens to, let's say, if someone believes that life is beyond, existing beyond physicality and mental processes, that life is now subjected to something horrific. We are fearful for those who are passing unless we had experiences which were beyond five sensory, which were positive and many caregivers do. Like I talked to, I talk to caregivers and they tell me all kinds of things. Uh, they convey and share with me things which they usually don't talk to anybody about. And why mm -hmm. don't they out of fear of ridicule? Uh, we also take it heavily because we, uh, our own experience of life is physicality and, uh, and we, our identity is if this ends, then everything ends. And that's why we take it so heavily. Because when you think of it, if you had experienced that, you, that life exists beyond the physical and the mental process, if you were at the bedside of someone who is dying and had experienced that that life continues, and I had experienced not just thought or belief system, but how acquainted you would be from the heaviness that life ends with the physical death. Just yes, a few weeks ago, uh, a resident I was attending to uh, 
suddenly the 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 experience the the illness took over in rapid pace, and the person was unable to swallow, and stopped eating. Mm-hmm. And as a, a spiritual care provider, I I went to the bedside of that uh, patient, and we were talking about death, and we were talking about that person's fear of dying, and I shared with uh, the person very personal experiences of states uh, being beyond the physicality. And this is what the, what the patient said to me. You touched my heart. And now I remember after my mother died, she came to me. And I realized later that my role was not to as much to share my personal experience, but to recall for that person, help the person to recall that experience when he lost his mother, and he had that experience which was beyond five senses. And that eased off his departure. Because it was based on his experience, not on me telling and sharing my stories. But sharing my stories was the bridge to his experience. And once he recalled that experience, his fear was lessened. And then he passed on two days later. Very beautiful. Um, so maybe building on that, Sophia, um, I mean, you talked about how you then share your experiences and how that's impacted on, you know, um, you know, that, that, um, that client's experience in that moment. Um, can we expand that, I guess, maybe to talk about then, because you've, you've mentioned it throughout, um, but the role of humor, and how do you how do you use humor then, um, you know, more broadly, um, you know, through, you know, these difficult sort of parts, like, where does it fit in? I, I don't, uh, I don't plan hum- the humor shows up, if you will. Okay. Uh, here's an example. Recently, a loved one was passing on and family members were gathered around and I had a challenge with finding in a timely manner a priest who would come and give the sacrament of the sick, uh, the last blessing, because the person was Christian, mm-hmm. Roman Catholic. And, uh, and finally, I located the priest who would come within 15 minutes. And when I came to the family uh, bedside, I said to them, "It's a f- because I actually did. When the priest agreed, I said to him, I love you, <laughs> because I was so grateful. I said, I love you. And then when I came to the family, I said, this is first time ever in my life I told the priest I love, I love him. <laughs> <laughs> and I told them that uh, the outcome is such that the priest is coming. And everybody laughed. Everybody laughed in this room as the person was in the bed and actively passing. This is what I mean uh, about humor showing up. Sometimes it was intentional, truly was intentional. Not treating people and the place as if it is only grim and heavy. Um, You know, on intensive care unit years ago, there was a patient who was on life support, but I knew that he um, he was aware because that awareness never goes away, actually. Hence why the connection with people is dementia. And uh, family members were sitting by the bedside of this person because uh, the, 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 the doctors concluded that uh, this life is coming to its end. 
And I walked into the room because I had already rapport um, created with the patient. Every time I finished exercises, I would put my uh, small finger around his, even when he was not responding. And I would say to him, pinky hug, Fred, pinky hug. One day when I was leaving that room and I didn't do the pinky hug, I looked over my shoulder and he lifted the finger, uh, not the middle one, the pinky one. <laughs> and I knew that he was kind of telling me, hey, girl, you forgot the pinky hug. So I went and I gave him the, the pinky hug. And so I knew that he was all along very aware what I was doing with him, that mm-hmm. I was greeting him, you know, saying goodbye a certain way. So one day when I walked into his uh, room, uh, family members were sitting there and he was deemed to be gone. And I knew um, because, how do I put it? In my presentations and my training, I uh, show people how they need to shift into intuitive abilities. Even Einstein was saying that we created society based on logical mind and we totally disregarding our sacred gift, our intuitive mind. So I walked into the room knowing the man already, seeing the family being sitting there in desperation and and uh, in, in sorrow and grieving, frankly. But I, I sense that he is aware and to some degree he's not giving them signals intentionally. So I called on his name and I said, do you know they're sitting by your side for an hour and a half already? For goodness sake, give them some sign. At least open your eyes and wink at them. And would you believe he opened his eyes and he winked? A week later, he passed on. Would you think that the family maybe has amazing memory from that bedside of the loved one dying, and it's not just associated with heavy, grim emotions, but moment of playfulness mm-hmm. and joy, joy which is always present and always um, able to or ready to be accessed. Yeah, so it's it's not obviously turning a situation into a knock-knock joke, but it's, you know, it, it, it's, you know, maybe in more poetic language, it's it's opening, right, the, the drapes, letting the light in, putting in some flowers, yes. right, creating a space which has, uh, has some integral beauty to it um as opposed to closing the curtains turning off the lights and and playing you know funeral music right which makes everybody feel differently and the most uh uh, powerful element in it is the patient is participating in it Mm -hmm. the patient needs to play active role but not necessary um if the patient uh, was light-hearted person and enjoyed uh, humor throughout their life uh, and if I connected with that person prior to them being in the final stages of life, and I'll bring these stories of my connecting with that per- person with joy and humor prior to them reaching final stage of life, the family uh, also appreciates this. Because when you think of it, what all we want for those we love? We want them to be happy. Mm-hmm. So if those who are in our care have a moment of being happy, even when they're struggling, Uh, Isn't that amazing gift to those who are staying behind to know that that someone who is on the on the Alzheimer unit uh, with advanced dementia is uh, having moments of joy and laughter. You know, right now we have someone who is working there in uh, in um, uh, the the person who does activities brings so much joy. It's it's. It affects not just the residents, it affects everybody who works there. And the residents who are uh, who are in advanced states of dementia respond to it. People feel the energy 
and the emotional states of those around them. Those with states with the, you know, advanced dementia and Alzheimer's, they know, they, they sense it. If you come there with joy, they open their eyes. They maybe will not speak to you, but they will respond to the energy level, to the emotional lightness that you bring to their presence. That's what music does. Mm-hmm. You, they will not be able to have a meaningful conversations with you, but they will touch their hearts. And some of them will say, it's good, it's good. And they will touch their hearts. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess what it re- reminds me of, I guess, in some ways, again, putting, bringing, helping me to sort of understand it, um, you know, we're creating feelings, I guess, that I would associate with home, right, or family or right things mm-hmm. that, you know, and understand why people want to, you know, to to die in, in their own homes, right, because it is a place of safety, it's a place yes. of joy, yeah. it's memories, um, yes. and to some degree, you know, through the experiences that you're helping, you know, to, to create in, in a institutional environment, um, are giving them some of that same sort of humanity. Um, if I come, if I come from a place of, uh, I am equal human being, I'm here to serve in my best capacity. It's not up to me to determine if you're going or you're not. Um, I am connected to a life source, which uh, throbs in my heart and makes my breath possible. Mm-hmm. I am just a part of something which is much greater. I am not as an individual in this whole uh, big life uh, responsible for your life. I am just element in it. And what I found that when I was coming from that place, when I was connected to my God, to my spirit and the spirit of all creation, however you call it, then I was coming with not as such a big burden, neither did I uh, have to uh, describe and determine that life needs to go or stay. It was not on me. There are greater forces which are working. And you know, in my personal journey, speaking, going back full circle to my personal journey, it was in the time of my life when majority of my identity was lost. When I came to Canada, suddenly I was not a therapist. I couldn't speak the language. I didn't have relations with people. I didn't know the culture, how it operates. I -hmm. didn't know which way to go. When I ask for assistance of something which was much greater, that assistance was coming and showing up through people, through circumstances, hence why, how quickly I end up in the hospital. There were another crisis, for lack of better words, in my life, when I also went on my knees, literally and otherwise, and I asked of assistance of something greater, and the right circumstances started unfolding. And we, in our... uh, in our thought processes, we seem to be just relying on ourselves where life is much greater than that. And it is uh, the spirit of life, as I would call it, is uh, for us, for all of us. We, uh, we It doesn't make distinctions as to how, uh, what kind of color skin you have, how educated you are, uh, what kind of titles you have, what kind of positions you hold. It is accessible to all of us. Hence why we need to return to that connection because on our own, we are uh, to some degree lost. But when we see that there are forces in our life which are grading be- uh, which are operating beyond our uh, limited uh, aw- um, awareness, knowledge, then uh, we are walking in a humble space and we are equal with each other. 
So, I mean, you've had a few decades of experience in this space, Sophia. Um, you know, and you, you know, I think if you're describing your you know, you're bringing together different cases or stories in a, perhaps in another forthcoming book. Um, but, you know, what would be your, uh, I guess, inspiration? I mean, like, what have you drawn from all of these different experiences, I guess, that might, you know, um, you know, that you could say that you've learned about healthcare or even more about humanity as a result of this? That we are all alike within. In my presentations, in my keynotes, uh, I uh, ask the audience members if, uh, to have a very short uh, interactive moments when they experience it. Mm -hmm. And they're shocked because they're sitting by random people, you would think, uh, but they find uh, connections, which is mind-boggling. <laughs> and uh, so we are all alike. Inside, every human being is longing for the same. Every human being is longing for love. Every human being knows when it's respected. Every human being knows when it's appreciated. Every human being knows that it's respected just by us being curious and wanting to learn from them. They are being validated. This language is universal. And the language of joy is equally universal because every human being is looking for happiness. Every human being understands when uh, humor is introduced and experientially that uh, there is psychological distance to interpretation and heaviness of the situation. It can be done with everybody. I was shocked that my presentations given to palliative care providers shifted in no time to the world of business. And I found myself standing in front of large uh, audiences speaking about my experiences and the language of humor and joy to uh, leaders in a business. It, it was fascinating to me that uh, that this language that I'm talking about is universal and mm -hmm. crosses uh, various uh, disciplines, if you will, in where humans operate. So speaking of leaders in that space, then, I mean, what would be your advice to, to them in terms of what they can perhaps do differently themselves in terms of you know their roles within healthcare organizations, and and thinking even more specifically outside of, you know that those that have roles in in hospice or palliative care, um, you know what is maybe the lessons that you know other parts of the health system can take from from those two uh, sectors that you've been working in. We need to start uh, operating and uh, giving people permission to work and be in the presence of another and serve from a place of compassion and uh, compassion and love versus fear and control. Because that's what part of our minds wants to do. We want to control life. We want to be certain. But there's element to life, um, call it spiritual, however you will want to address it, mm -hmm. which is in flow, which is out of our grasp which we cannot fully, we don't know it all. And I'm not even sure that we can fully uh, control it. There has to be element of unknown, uh, which we can step into full wholeheartedly and trust life processes. We can't be rigid uh, and knowing it all. We have to admit that we do not know it all. And quite mm -hmm. often those who are at the end of life are our teachers. It's, a, it's fascinating to me that in the culture that I, uh, stepped into and started living how 
how we are constantly focused on prolonging life and youthfulness and how how um, how uh, much time we spend on our physicality and we are not uh, going deeper into what it is uh, a privilege to be alive to be a human being we became you know the conference where we met uh, the theme uh, was uh, caring doing and being and i felt it's the being that we are uh, disconnected from we are disconnected from our state of being from inner peace the observer in us which observes these ever fluctuating thoughts uh, it's the one who is actually the true identity it mm -hmm. is sitting there throughout our lives it's always there regardless and somehow we come attuned with that state of being and we need to go there inside the journey is inside and once we uh journey inside, then we bring it to the presence of others without proclaiming, screaming, or uh, telling others what to. People sense it, and indirectly, they're given permission to be uh, themselves and be okay with not being perfect and knowing it all. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, that's, I mean, it's true of many leaders and, and other professionals is, you know, the, the focus on, on doing and, and outcomes and achievements, right? Um, but it is that self-reflection as a leader about learning yourself, your biases, your, your, your fears, your, right, yes. your, who you are, um, that is the, the hardest, um, but in many respects, I think probably the most rewarding um, and a, a good place to begin. Um, so maybe moving from there, Sophia, I mean, I know we're getting close to time here as well, and I want to respect that. Um, you know, so any, you know, final words to you, and, and I know how much you, you're, you're very passionate about this and, and giving the gift of your experiences to others and, and helping to, to share and, and to help others to learn from what you're, you've experienced. So, um, yeah, so any final words to you and, and maybe sort of to let people know how they can engage with you if they would like to, to, um, to learn more. I am at the same time simultaneously as I am on the front line. I am also speaking and presenting and um, offering uh, workshops. Actually, few are booked already, including keynotes. So if someone is interested in me coming to the organization or a conference or a group gathering, uh, team building, mm -hmm. because uh, once we uh, discover and equip individually, it affects the dynamics of the cultures of the environments in which we are. So I am uh, inviting people to reach out to me if they're interested. I'll be more than happy. There is way more to humor than meets the ear, as I like to say. <laughs> Just yesterday, I heard a very renowned psychologist uh, talking about uh, research done on how humor affects the dynamics in uh, in marriages, in relationships, how it's a powerful tool to enliven and, uh, and bring the relationships to exuberance and, and different space. And I experience it in my personal life. I experience it in my work and I am this this offering is in making over 30 years uh, internationally I work with people here in Manitoba from all different walks of lives different religions different ages um, I uh, I know it's universal language uh, I know how to equip people and with my recent experience with people with dementia and Alzheimer's even more so because mm -hmm. I was given the training which uh, is not equipping me the way that I believe people should be. There are ways of us individually engaging in our personal lives 
in uh, ways which uh, will transfer into the places where we work, where we live. There are tools so that we all can engage in to access that what I'm talking about. And it is a very freeing experience. Life becomes a lighter. You know, life becomes synchronistic. Life becomes uh, um, rich and uh, majestic and uh, magical, for lack of better words. There's a flow to life which we are disconnected from. And that flow also happens in the hospital settings at the bedside of dying patients. It actually does. And maybe because the logical mind cannot grasp mortality, it is so pronounced there. If we only open ourselves to it, rather than being overwhelmed by and uh, blocked by our own perceptions and ideas and belief systems as to what life and death is, because that's what it all comes to. At the end, people who come to my uh, workshops and presentations, are they being equipped to live life differently? Wow, it's uh, some very insightful sort of last words for yourself and 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 hopeful, um, which I think you know as we started the the conversation, I wanted to provide hope um, uh, to our listeners and to you know so many healthcare workers who are searching for that. I think in in new ways. So thank you for sharing all of that, and and perhaps you can share as well, um, you know, some of the ways that people can contact you um, or resources. Uh, we'll add them in our show notes for our listeners and then they can connect with you that way as well. So um, thank you again, Sophia, for a really beautiful, um, heart-moving uh, conversation. Um, I feel lighter and more open today than I was uh, when we started, so thank you. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate this. and giving me an opportunity to share about my passion, my work, and uh, um, hopefully we will bring it to more people to empower them to shift their lives and uh, so they can enjoy it. Thank you. You take care. Thank you. You've been listening to the HQ and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple podcast or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.